Right. So the overall intent or purpose or direction of this retreat is to produce the body of radiance. And uh, the body of radiance uh, is built primarily on the purification of the senses. So, we'll approach it from the grossest sense, in a way, moving towards the more finer sense. So, so we'll start with the eyes and end up in taste and smell, which are your oldest senses. Taste and smell are the oldest senses. And, of course, in some ways, uh, they're the least appreciated perhaps, partly because of the most ignored, usually. Again, arguably, hearing in your eyes are your main sense attention-getters. But curiously, uh, smell and taste are the two that are most important, because you can survive without your eyesight, and you can survive without your hearing, but you can't survive without your smell and taste. Because if your smell's gone and you can't taste, you can't tell whether something that is off, like uh, meat or food has gone off. You can't tell. You get sick. You can die. So we'll start with the grossest first, which is your eyes. But before we get there, uh, I'm going to just introduce it in a way uh, first with the idea of the eight kinds of consciousness. Purification of the senses or purification of the sense doors probably the most important work you do in the spiritual path. And to do that, of course, you have to approach the senses. So there we are. But just to give you a context for the first six senses, uh, we're going to introduce the seventh, eighth, and ninth. Not because we're going to be spending that much time on them directly, but because purifying the first six purifies the seventh, empties out the eighth, and reveals the ninth. And now I'm going to try and describe what that means. Your first five senses are really easy, aren't they? They're basically your sense organs, your eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, taste consciousness, touch being your fifth. Your sixth consciousness is your mind, uh, your mind-door consciousness. The mind-door consciousness is just the consciousness of perception, pure perception. That which perceives the smell, that which perceives or registers the sound, that which registers the taste, that which registers the touch. All the nerve endings go to the brain. So the brain is a function or the brain is an organ of sense. Uh, registers these things. So that's your sixth sense. That's straightforward. Now when these six senses work together in combination, they can create a web or a weaving. In any case, the... Six consciousnesses, when they interact and interweave, form a, form a weaving. <laughs> and this weaving or tapestry generates the seventh consciousness, uh, which is the ego. The interaction of these six consciousnesses produce something new. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the ego is created out of these six interacting, like a computer program in a way. And the seventh ego consciousness now is shape from the day that you're born, we'll leave out previous incarnations for the moment, is shaped from the day you're born through your early years and into adulthood, teenage years, it gets refined, doesn't it? 
your ego at 6 is not the same as your ego at 10. Your ego at 10 is not the same as your ego at 15. Your ego at 15 is not the same as your ego at 20. No, 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 no. So on and so on. So your ego is constantly being reshaped right through, hopefully, to the day you die, by your changing sensorial uh, experiences. So the seventh consciousness is the ego consciousness. This is the organizing consciousness that is self-reflective. The mind is the sixth consciousness doesn't know itself. The ego as the seventh consciousness knows itself. This is the big jump from animals to humans, arguably. We don't have any real proof. But arguably the big jump is that the human being is the only animal that we know of that can have a reflection of its own operation. And that happens because of the six senses coming together to join this mind consciousness, which makes eventually this leap. Now, two reasons they, they hypothesize, they present the idea that the human being has moved to this uh, seventh consciousness, this ego consciousness, where animals haven't so much, is for two reasons. One is our upright posture, the fact that we can, our hands are free to manipulate objects and turn them around. And this, uh, the other one is the vocal cords, the dropping of the vocal cords into the throat, which produces the ability to talk, which means we can complexify our calls and complexify our vocabulary and our communication, uh, which gradually became more and more abstract. So a, a monkey may be able to use a tool to get a banana out of a tree, but it doesn't have any concept of money or it hasn't particularly got a concept of free trade or nationality. It doesn't. It may have a race consciousness of tribe, but it doesn't have the idea of the artificial boundaries. So this complexifying seventh consciousness is the ego consciousness, which is the thing that really has to be purified as well, because the purified ego consciousness is based on the purified sensing consciousnesses in the same way that the so-called polluted or ego-referencing seventh consciousness is based on a biasing, a biasing or a bending of the senses towards tendencies. This is considered the pollution of the senses, the preferencing. Not because there's anything wrong with preferencing, but that preferencing biases the ego to a particular choice and then it tries to hang on to that choice and repels the other choice. The eighth consciousness is called the alia, or the storehouse consciousness. Now, the storehouse consciousness contains all the experiences of everybody. The whole, not only us here, but every human being in the world, but not every human being in the world, but every human being that's ever lived, every human being that ever will live, but not only human beings, but all the animals, not only the animals, but the trees and the rivers and the rocks and the stones, but not only that, but the stars and intergalactic space. In other words, the entire universe. This eighth consciousness, this storehouse consciousness, is probably what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, the whole storehouse of consciousness. Because of the pollution in the ego consciousness, that pollution of bias, so rejecting the strawberry and preferring the chocolate, pollutes the eighth. It sort of puts a bias into the storehouse consciousness. Does that make sense? So they've posited, they've presented a ninth consciousness, which is the eighth consciousness purified from the bias of the seventh, polluting the eighth. By purifying 
the first six. The seventh gets purified. You take the pollution out of the eighth, and you're left with the pure ninth. Fair enough? So what's the operative word here? The operative word here again and again is purification, purification, purification. But your eyes are already, in a sense, unbiased, aren't they? I mean, by nature, they're, they're just eyes. Eyes just see things. And mouths just taste things. And touches just touch things. So in a sense, your consciousness is already purified. The sixth consciousness, the mind door, is nothing more, in a way, than the conglomeration of the sixth producing a web of the seventh. So the mind door should be pure. There's nothing wrong there. The only uh, pollution, in a sense, is when these seventh come together through conditioning and patterning based on gender, uh, race, nationality, generation, uh, language, big, big bender of things, right? Um, cultural conditioning, religion, social patternings, etc., etc., etc. So, in a sense, the ninth is already purified by definition. The first uh, six are purified because they're neutral anyway, they're pure. So the only pollutant really is in the seventh, the ego consciousness that makes preferences based on bias. So the spiritual path has three steps, purification, illumination, and sanctification. Sanctification is the result of the purification, illumination is the result of the purification. So now you've reduced the entire spiritual life to one little problem, the purification of consciousness. And curiously enough, the Vasudhimada, the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification, the entire texts of the early Theravadan teachings of meditation to bring you to that path was called the path of purification. So, the Vasudhimaga, the oldest meditation text in the world, starts with sila, moves to samadhi, and then to illumination, or insight. So, insight is the sanctification. Samadhi, or concentration, meditative absorption, is the illumination. And sila, or purification, or morality and ethics, is the purification. So, again and again and again, you see that all roads lead back to Rome the Rome being the purification. What we'll do here is work on purifying the senses, which means simply go back to the sense-based door simply as a sense-based door. So, returning to the purification theme, there are three major venues, or three major avenues of approach to purification. And you've heard this before body, speech, and mind. Now, your first conditionings were built physiologically, bodily, and these are your highest and most difficult and most severe attachments. Your body is your most closest attachment because it's the first place where the ego identity was built. It was built in the body. The separation from the breast, um, mother's milk was good or mother's milk was sour, uh, how you were touched, how you were held. So what I, the point I'm making really is that this conditioning is laid down, first of all, physiologically. The physiological content 
will then determine the speech or emotional content, depending on, depending on how your physiological contact went with ice cream. Thus, you're being conditioned or patterned to be emotionally related to ice cream in a certain way, speech aspect. And then your speech will also vary according to how you were conditioned physiologically. So if mommy said, oh, I love you, I love you, here's ice cream, oh, I love my baby ice cream, then uh, whenever Don, as a 40-year-old man, not yet, walks by an uh, ice cream store, he's going to go, mommy, mommy, ice cream, ice cream. Now, he may not recognize that intellectually. It may not arise particularly emotionally. But physiologically, you see it. The only problem with this is it was all laid down unconsciously. It was laid down before you were conscious of what was happening. And so now, when Dunk walks by the ice cream store and just wants to sort of go in there and get ice cream, even though his stomach's upset, it's because it's laid down before he was consciously aware that it was laid down. So, the purpose of the purification of the senses, curiously, given that we've already stated that there's nothing impure in the senses, is you're not really changing the nature of the sense experience. What you're doing is you're unloading or pulling out or sifting through the unconscious aspect of the conditioning of this physiology. In other words, you're just making that which is unconscious, conscious at a physiological level. This is the hardest layer to get to. Because the physiology was first when you were least conscious. Now, as you get older, you learn to speak. You learn to cry. You learn to make up a fuss. You learn to say no. Terrible twos. You, are you at the terrible twos or are you past that? No, 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 no. Go to bed, no. Eat, no. Eat this, no. Right? Get up, no. Go left, no. Go right, no. Okay, do what you want, no. The, so the emotional context of of the child comes when they learn to walk, more freedom, more ability to move farther away from the parent's control, to disappear. I was a great disappearer. Started running away from home when I was four. Hmm? The police knew my mother's name, first name, because they were always bringing me back. You move farther away, but as you learn to speak, you also you also uh, move into the emotional. So walking and talking move it more from the physiological now into the more emotional realm. Douglas, supper time. What? Keep playing outside. You do this. You played out. How many times did mother have to call you before you paid attention? And did dad's voice change the? <laughs> Depending on your dynamic. Douglas, you get in for supper. Douglas. <laughs> well, it depends on your story. You know, female lions do all the work. Male lions basically lie around and procreate. Right? And the women do all the lionesses do all the work. They do all the hunting. The men mess it up. You know, the men just sort of run out and try to catch something. And the drop runs away. Only the women have the patience to kind of sneak up. So the men aren't very good hunters, and they aren't very good providers, and basically they're good sleepers. <laughs> However, when the hyenas come and start harassing the lions, 
over the kill. All it takes is the roar of the male lion to send all those hyenas running. So they do serve a function, the protective or the cohesive nature of it. So in your experience, your mother may be dominant at some level, your father might be dominant at some other level, but you need to decode or unlock or open into consciousness whatever these patternings were. Now, don't think you've got a huge task and you've got to go through the entire 45 years of your life, you know, item by item. You just need to let the pattern unlock itself. And you let the pattern unlock itself by not getting distracted by physiological preference or aversion. You unlock it by not getting distracted by emotional preference or aversion. Nor do you get distracted by intellectual or thinking consciousness distraction. In other words, you don't let the outer messages, which are the pollution aspect, interfere with your meditation, which is to go underneath those voices, emotions, sensorial likes and dislikes, to go underneath that iceberg, under that ice, and get down into the water where the sensation itself is just the sensation, the sense is just the sense. Clear? The last thing to develop is your theoretical or your intellectual biases. This happens later, and it usually happens when you learn to go to school. So as you go to school, first it's your ABCs, mom and dad are still God, they know everything. Then you get just a little bit prepubescent, and now you're starting to kind of wrestle with them a little. Now you become pubescent, you're wrestling with them a lot, because it's time to leave. And so your parents are no longer gods. But if you go to college, of course, almost everybody who goes to college believing in God leaves college not believing in God. Because you substitute the God of the parent for the God of the information base, right? It doesn't make sense intellectually. So your intellect develops. And then, of course, as you move through your teenage years and you get contacted with other conditioned carbon units, (laughs) other people... You start to uh, mold or shift or adjust your intellectual position according to your new context at universities or in art school or in the trades or through marriages or girlfriends, boyfriends, your first boyfriend, your first girlfriend. You know, they don't have the same story, in his case a history and in her case a history. And these two stories then have to kind of well, hold it, this isn't the way the program runs, and she's going, hold it, this isn't the way the program runs, and clash, clash, clash. And you go, oh, okay, well, maybe maybe I can, maybe she's right there, maybe he's right there, and then you get this new person, but that's only one-one, and you have one-on six billion. So hold it, now you got your second boyfriend, or your second girlfriend, or your second boss, or your third friend in college, right? And now your mind is starting to complexify the patternings by the more people you meet. It gets very complicated. By the time you're 20, 25, you're exhausted by all these different minds. So now you start eliminating. And by the time you're 40 or 50, you've eliminated almost everybody who doesn't agree with you. And as you get to be 60 and 70, you're down to four or five friends. And they're people who think like you, act like you, speak like you, talk like you, behave like you. And basically, you're clones. It's getting to be too much work. So what you haven't done there, of course, is they haven't done the purification work. You've just sort of 
gone th through this bell curve of knowing nothing, <laughs> being conditioned physiologically, being conditioned emotionally, and being conditioned intellectually. And then somewhere between your, your 30s and your 50s, then you start to go, I can't be bothered anymore. <laughs> and you start to go back in a sense your emotional and your physiological patterning.